Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 33, Canossa, finally. It has taken a while, but today we will finally get to that famous moment reproduced in thousands of German schoolbooks and maybe the only event of the Middle Ages most Germans have heard about. But before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges for the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to James, Sean and Stefan who have already signed up. Last week, we ended with that famous letter of Henry IV to Pope Gregory VII that began with an insult, Hildebrandt, at present not Pope but false monk, and ended with a call for him to step down. That letter arrived in February 1076, when Pope Gregory had convened the bishops from near and far for his annual Lenten Synod in Rome. Gregory steps up to the altar and reads the letter of the King of the Romans. Then he reads another letter, sent by the German bishops, making the same points and including the same insults that Henry IV had hurled at the Holy Father. And finally, he reads another letter sent by Henry IV to the people of Rome, asking them to rise up against the false monk. Finally, the imperial envoy addresses the congregation and demands the deposition of Gregory VII from the Synod. They promise that Henry IV will personally come down to Rome at Pentecost and bring a new pope. Well, 10 out of 10 for cojones, but not exactly Mensa-level intelligent who will be at the Lenten Synod called by Pope Gregory VII. Wild guess, mostly people who support Gregory VII. The bishops and other prelates who were opposed to Gregory VII have declared him not Pope, but false monk, which makes it unlikely they would put in an appearance. No surprise then that the hostile audience erupts, and the royal envoys are lucky to get out alive. Allegedly, they had to hide behind the billowing papal robes to avoid getting stabbed. Gregory's response was swift and unflinching. First, he deposes Archbishop Siegfried of Mainz, the most senior German clergyman and first signatory of the Litter of the Bishops. Siegfried is excommunicated and suspended from all episcopal duties. He then lists all other bishops he suspects of voluntarily supporting Henry IV and declares them equally suspended. The remaining bishops have until August 1 to declare allegiance to the Pope by messenger or in person. Failure to do so means automatic suspension. And the bishops of Lombardy are suspended wholesale. Gregory has just dismissed 26 out of the 45 German bishops. I would call that bold. As for Henry IV, Gregory declares the following, quote, O Holy Peter, Prince of the Apostles, Mercifully incline your holy ears to us and hear me, your servant, whom you have nurtured from childhood and whom you have delivered to this day from the hand of the wicked who have hated and hate me because of my fidelity to you. You are my witness, together with my lady, the mother of God, and your brother amongst all the saints, St. Paul, that your holy Roman church has forced me against my will to be its leader. Bear witness that I have not thought of ascending your throne by force and that I would rather have ended my life as a pilgrim than to ascend your throne by worldly means for the sake of earthly glory. 
And therefore, I believe that it is by your grace and not by my own deeds that it has pleased you and pleases you that all the Christian people who are committed to you obey me, your duly ordained representative on earth. And so to me has been given by your grace the power to bind and to lose in heaven and on earth. Based on this holy commission, in the name of the Almighty God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, for the honor and safety of your church, I deprive by your power and authority Henry, King, son of Henry the Emperor, who has risen up against your church with outrageous insolence, of dominion over the whole realm of the Germans and over Italy. And I release all Christians from the bonds of oath that I have taken or will take to him. And I forbid anyone to serve him as king, for it is fitting that he who seeks to diminish the honor of your church should himself forfeit the honor that was his due. And since he has refused to obey us as a Christian, has not returned to the God whom he had forsaken, has consorted with the excommunicated, has committed manifold iniquities, has spurned my commandments, which, as you testify, I gave him for his own salvation, has separated himself from your church and has strived to tear it asunder. I therefore bind him in your stead with the chain of the anathema, and I bind him in such a way that people of all nations may know and have proof that you are Peter, and that the Son of the living God had built his church on your rock, a rock the gates of hell cannot overpower. End quote. This is not the first time a ruler has been excommunicated. The first time was in 390 AD when the Bishop Ambrose of Milan banned the Emperor Theodosius for the massacre of Thessaloniki. And after that, kings are being excommunicated in surprising regularity. French rulers tend to have attracted more excommunications than most, usually for sexual misdemeanor. But equally, King Harold of England, of Hastings fame, and Duke Boleslav the Bold of Poland had been excommunicated. By 1076, Gregor VII himself had already excommunicated Robert Giscard. What is different in this man are two things. First, Gregory deprives Henry of dominion over the realm of the Germans and Italy, and he follows it up with, I release all Christians from the bonds of the oath they have taken or will take to him. That had not happened before, ever. Because so far the church had stuck to the words of Jesus reported in Matthew, Mark and Luke, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. In Gregory's mind, the concept of an all-powerful papacy that is owed obedience by everyone, a pope whose feet are to be kissed by kings and emperors, and who can depose the bishops, kings and emperors, supersedes these quaint New Testament notions. Henry IV had no lofty concepts. He trusted in the language of spears and swords. Given the Roman populace was unwilling to rise up against Gregory, he decided that he would have to come down by himself to sort things out. He announced that he would raise an army and go down to Rome by Pentecost to receive the long-overdue imperial coronation, be it from a chastened Gregory or from another pope. Now, if I had been a betting man in February 1076, I would have given Pope Gregory a maximum of six months in office. Pretty much everything was stacked against him. Just 30 years before, Henry's father had deposed not just one, but three popes. Henry is riding high on a major victory against his internal enemies, the Saxons. 
The German bishops have nothing good to say about Gregory who had harangued and harassed them for years, and most of these had been members of the royal chancery under either Henry III or Henry IV. In Italy, the Lombard bishops would provide an imperial army free passage south. Matilda of Tuscany would not be able to stop them, because if the king would travel in the company of Matilda's husband, Godfrey the Hunchback, some of her vassals may open their castles. And the Normans are no use right now, as the relationship was a bit tense after they had begun to nibble away at papal territory. There is no chance the French king would come to the Pope's aid, since Gregory had been on the verge of excommunicating him as well. Only the German magnates could sway in their loyalty to the king if the king continued in his authoritarian manner. But on the other hand, the magnates were the brothers and cousins of the bishops, so they would take their steer from them. So no chance then. Well, the reason I'm not a betting man is because my bets never work, and this one would have spectacularly failed. That things were not going as planned became clear quite quickly. Henry received note of the ban in March in Goslar. Enraged, he asked the bishop Pibo of Toul, who happened to be there, to excommunicate Gregory at Mass the next morning. In the night, Pibo of Toul and another bishop fled the royal palace and disappear. That is just a foretaste of what happens over the next eight months. The German bishops changed their mind, almost all of them, wholesale. Why that happened has been discussed amongst German historians for centuries, starting with Otto of Freising in the 12th century. As ever so often, there is not one reason for such a rapid acceleration of the Wheel of Fortune. The first issue was that the line of argument that Henry IV and the bishops had taken was flawed. They basically argued that Gregory had not been Pope, because he had not been elected using the proper process. That proper process was established only very recently at the 1059 Lateran Synod, and it ruled that the Pope should be elected by the Cardinals, not by the population of Rome. Moreover, this proper process had not been fully observed in the two previous elections either. Plus Gregory had been Pope for three years already without anyone having made a fuss about it. But the crucial point was, when the bishops looked at it in the cold, hard light of day, they realized that this argument could backfire quite badly. You see, Gregory, even if his election may have been flawed, he had been properly ordained. And that situation applied to many of the bishops as well, who had received their seats by appointment of the king, rather than by free election by the cathedral canons. Some may have even given financial compensation to the king in one way or another that could now be seen as simony. The bishops relied on the fact that they had been correctly ordained, which superseded any election flaws. The fear is that when the bishops establish a precedent that an incorrectly elected pope is no pope, well, where would they be? That was made worse by the fact that Henry IV had not been particularly good at choosing bishops who commanded the respect of their congregation. Some he pushed through against significant opposition amongst the cathedral chapter. But more importantly, the cities had grown both in wealth as well as in self-confidence. And as the merchants were getting richer, they found the bishops' haughtiness and lack of commercial dynamism chafing. And at the same time, the urban population in general demands a reform of the church. They want properly trained and morally upstanding clergymen looking after their souls. I already mentioned the uprising of the merchants of Cologne in 1074, and then the Pateria expelling the Archbishop of Milan. 
If you're a German bishop with a restless urban population, the last thing you want is that the Pope appoints a new bishop who brings the city population behind him and expels you for good. And then, this is a simple point that, okay, you say Gregory is not Pope, but so who is Pope then? If this one is not Pope, why did you not appoint a new one? Doesn't that suggest you may want to reconcile with Gregory after all? And where will I, the humble bishop of a small Rhenish town, be then? I do not want to be the guy that Gregory will come down like a ton of bricks later, so I better keep a low profile and see where the wind is blowing. The before last point comes down to Henry IV's behaviour. After the battle on the Unstrut, he had the opportunity to show mercy and get to a lasting arrangement with the Saxons. But Henry did not look for reconciliation. He wanted to continue his policy of territorial consolidation through the construction of castles. Fun fact, his great enemy Otto of Nordheim had swapped sides and was now his administrator in Saxony, rebuilding the castles he had railed against just two years earlier. So that remained, the Saxons remained hostile, and the other dukes, counts and bishops remained concerned about the king's authoritarian streak. And finally, there are the signs from heaven. Bishop William of Utrecht, Henry IV's greatest cheerleader, had been hurling insults and accusations of lewd behaviour at the Pope from the Chancellor of his church, claiming the excommunication was null and void. Days after he did this at the great Easter Mass in the presence of the King, William had to take to his bed. He suddenly became terribly ill and succumbed even before he could receive the last rites. The abbot of Cluny reported later that Bishop William had appeared to him in a dream and had said that he was now suffering in the deepest recesses of hell. Another royal supporter, the Bishop Eppo of Zeitz, fell from his horse and drowned in a shallow stream because St. Killian wanted him to drink water and not always wine. With the bishops wavering, Henry found it impossible to muster an army to push through his claim in Rome. The Reichstag here scheduled for May took place, but many major players like the Dukes of Swabia, Bavaria and Carinthia were absent, and so were a number of important bishops. Gregory waded into the debate by sending letters to all and sundry explaining the excommunication and finally putting proper canonical law arguments on the table, presumably developed by his chancery since he himself was no great intellectual. In a smart move, he empowered those bishops that had been loyal to the Pope to immediately release others from the ban, provided they were repentant and avoided communion with the king henceforth. That allowed the episcopal opposition around the Archbishop of Salzburg to pull in more and more bishops quickly. At the same time, the situation in Saxony tensed up. Some of the bishops released the Saxon leaders that had been held in prison on behalf of the king. Once released, these leaders and some who had managed to escape the wrath of the king gathered together and began a guerrilla war. Otto of Nordheim changed sides again and handed the Harzburg over to the rebels, wiping out most of the gains of the previous war. The bishops, who had been firmly on Gregory's side from the start, met up with the southern German dukes, Rudolf of Rheinfelden, Wealth IV of Bavaria and Bertolt of Zeringen. These magnates concluded the king had not changed after the Saxon campaign, was still overbearing and autocratic. Something needed to be done to preserve the ancient rights and privileges. At the heart of the opposition's debate was the question whether they still owed the king obedience under the oaths they had sworn. The oath of fealty was the glue that held early medieval society together. The lord would give a fief to his knight in exchange for the oath of fealty. 
and that was a good deal, because breaking an oath was an unpardonable sin that would condemn you to hell. No ifs, no buts. But around 1070, this line in the sand began shifting. We already heard in Otto of Nordheim's speech of 1073 that an oath was no longer sacrosanct. Otto said that he was no longer bound by his oath to Henry IV because the king had stopped being a king and had turned into a tyrant. We have also seen Gregory relieving the congregation of Constance from their oath to the bishop in 1075. And now the Pope has released everyone from their oath to the king. The erosion of the value of oaths will be one of the significant outcomes of the investiture controversy that changed Western Europe forever. In October 1076, the magnates and bishops of Germany came together in Trebor to debate how peace and unity of the kingdom could be maintained. Magnates who had been sworn enemies for a long time, such as Otto of Nordheim and Welf IV, reconciled in the interest of peace. This meeting was the first Reichstag where the king was absent. Not completely absent, he was across the Rhine in the castle of Oppenheim overlooking the gathering. But, as he was excommunicated, he was not allowed in the debates. And that fact says more clearly than anything that Henry IV had lost the argument. If he was seen as excommunicated, the man who excommunicated him, Gregory VII, must be the true Pope. And so some magnates wanted to go through with Gregory's order, formally declare Henry IV deposed and elect a new king. They even mustered their troops to cross the Rhine and attack the king in Oppenheim. But deposing the king and absolving everyone from their sworn obligation was still a step too far for many. There were also the papal legates who advocated for a more measured approach, probably getting cold feet over the fundamental change their letters had unleashed. Hence the conclusion was a compromise. Henry was ordered to write to Gregory and declare that he would henceforth be obedient to the Lord Pope. Further, they decided that they would elect a new king unless Henry would be able to get released from the papal ban within a year and a day from his excommunication, i.e. that would be before early February. The magnates invited Gregory to come to a Reichstag in Augsburg on February 2nd to decide whether Henry could remain as king. Until this decision, Henry had to give up his royal insignia and dismiss his remaining supporters, live like a private individual. And that he did. He left the site of his humiliation with a small group of supporters and goes to Speyer, where he spends the next few weeks thinking about what he can still do. As you can see, within less than a year did Henry IV go from undisputed ruler to excommunicated private citizen, shunned by everyone. There was only one way to get out, and that was to get the ban lifted. The only person who could lift the ban was Pope Gregory VII. Henry needed to meet Gregory before Gregory reached Augsburg, or all will be lost. A few days before Christmas, Henry, his wife Bertha, and his little son set off from Speyer for Italy. Not a single one of his nobles is with him, and along the way only few of his closest supporters would provide the travellers with food and horses. He is so ostracized that even his bishops and advisers, who had also been excommunicated and who also tried to get to Italy and get relief, refused to travel with him. The dukes of Swabia, Bavaria and Corinthia, who controlled the main alpine passes, had them close to the king, which is why he diverted to Besançon and further on to Montseny. Montseny, you may remember, is the one alpine pass not under control of the German duchies, but held by Bertha's parents, the Counts of Savoy. I think I said a few episodes ago that this will matter later, 
and here it does. Without this Alpine pass, Henry would have never been able to make it to Italy and his reign would have ended there and then. Son-in-law or not, the passage is however not free. Henry has to grant his mother-in-law the last bits of the Kingdom of Burgundy that bore some similarity to imperial overlordship. And more. Lambert of Hersfeld said that the winter of 1077 was so persistently cold that one could walk across the frozen Rhine River all the way from November to March. And that meant the passes across the Alps were frozen even more than normal. But there was no time to waste. Henry hired some locals who knew ways to get across even in the depth of winter. The guides led them up to the top of the pass, but on the other side, the road covered with ice, descent became quite difficult. They slid down the mountains on their hands and knees, held on by their guides. The horses were at time hoisted down the path or slid down the hill with their legs tied up. Many died. The queen and her ladies-in-waiting were put on oxides and tobogganed down into the valley. Once the king arrived in the plains of Piemont, the bishops of Italy flocked to his banner. Within a short period of time, Henry was in command of a serious army. The Italian bishops were keen for Henry to go down to Rome and remove Pope Gregory by force of arms. Gregory at the same time had begun his trip towards Augsburg when he heard about Henry's arrival. Given the king was now in command of an army, the Pope was unclear what would happen next. His ever-faithful friend Matilda of Tuscany suggested for him to go onto one of her strongest defences, the castle of Canossa. Canossa is, by the way, not just one castle, as it's often described, but a veritable chain of fortifications consisting of six or seven major castles that protect the approaches to Canossa itself. Militarily, we are in a stalemate. Canossa is too well defended for the royal army to overcome. On the other hand, the Pope cannot travel to Augsburg whilst the royal army blocks his path. Henry now needs a team that could intercede on his behalf. The main interlocutors were the Abbot of Cluny, one of the most significant representatives of the monastic reform movement, and at the same time godfather of Henry IV. And secondly, the great Countess Matilda of Tuscany. Matilda was loosely related to the Emperor and, despite her clear allegiance to Gregory, still his vassal. Those two were of immeasurable value to Henry IV because, other than anybody else in his court, Gregory trusted these two. Getting their support was not easy. Henry had to back them to advocate his case, and according to the Italian chronicler Donizio, to do that on his knees. The artwork I use for this season shows that scene, where Henry IV begs Matilda and Hugh of Cluny to plead on his behalf before the Pope. I doubt that there is another medieval image of a crowned ruler kneeling before a woman for political rather than sexual reasons. Henry kicked off negotiations by asking the Pope to release him from the ban, on the grounds that the German princes had slandered him out of greed and that the Pope should not believe all they say. To that Gregory responded that if his case was true, he could put it to the Reichstag in Augsburg. There the Pope would weigh the claims of the princes and the king justly and according to the laws of the Church. What Gregory did not say is that he had received a letter in Henry's own hand that contained enough attacks on the honour of the papacy to depose him three times over. So, Henry had to change his approach. Henry's intermediaries, Matilda and Hugh, explained that Henry would happily submit to the Pope's judgment, but that the Reichstag in Augsburg was simply too late. By then, he would have been under the ban for more than a year and a day, and so would no longer be king, 
and hence have no standing in the proceedings. All he asked for is to be released from the ban, after which he would obey the Pope in all and everything. Even should the Pope decide that he was to lose his kingdom for his sins, he would accept that judgment without rancor and vacate the throne. Gregory responded to Matilda and you that, if Henry was indeed prepared to accept the papal judgment, why doesn't he hand over the crown and imperial regalia to him right now and declares himself unworthy of kingship? And that is the moment when Matilda of Tuscany and Hugh of Cluny gain their place in the history books. They appeal to the Holy Father's mercy, quoting Isaiah 42, where God tells his servant, A bruised reed shall he not break, the smoking flax shall he not quench. Thanks to the intervention of these two, the Pope finally allowed Henry to come and atone for his insults to the Holy Apostolic Church by showing obedience to the true Vicar of Christ. Henry went to the castle of Canossa and, I now hand over to Lambert of Hersfeld, who described the scene as follows, quote, He came as he was ordered, and since the castle was surrounded by a triple wall, he was taken into the perimeter of the second ring wall, while his entire retinue remained outside. And there he stood, after taking off the royal adornment, without any signs of royal dignity, displaying no pomp, barefoot, fasting from morning to evening, awaiting the pronouncement of the Roman Pope. This he did on the second, this on the third day. Only on the fourth day was he led before him, and after many speeches and counter-speeches, he was released from the ban. Unquote. Gregory himself justified the release from the ban by saying that the king's tears had moved all of those present there to such pity and compassion that they wondered at the unaccustomed hardness of our heart, and some were accusing him of cruelty, if not tyrannical ferocity, and finally he gave in against the constant supplications of those present and the persistency of his compunction. I think in modern world this is called social pressure. Having a king kneeling in the front yard is something no 11th century person could ignore. Having a king kneeling in the front yard is something no 11th century person could ignore. Remember Emperor Conrad II kneeling before his son Henry III, begging to support him in the case against the Duke of Carinthia. And what about the Emperor Henry II kneeling before his bishops asking for permission to create the bishopric of Bamberg? It seems that the act of kneeling in the dirt is a sort of safe word in this Game of Thrones where all persecution has to stop. These acts are very rarely spontaneous. They are, even if all participants claim the contrary, negotiated in the tiniest detail beforehand. The length of the penitence, the amount of the crying, the depth of the bow, all that is set. I cannot get my head round the idea that the penitence in Canossa was any different. They had been negotiating for days, and according to Gregory, probably for weeks before the famous scene took place. And if that had been negotiated, then the second part of the event, the conditions of readmittance, had also been negotiated beforehand. Here's how Lambert of Hersfeld describes them. Quote, he, well that would be Henry IV, was to meet in a general assembly on any day and at any place that the Pope might determine. After the German princes had been summoned, he was to answer the charges that were brought against him. The Pope, if he thought it to be right, would sit in the judge's chair to decide the matter. After the judge's decision, Henry was either to keep the kingdom, if he cleared himself of the accusations, or to lose it, without resistance, should the accusations prove to be true, and he was declared unworthy of the royal dignity according to the laws of the church. Irrespective of whether he would keep or lose the kingdom, 
he would not take revenge on any man for that humiliation. Until the day when his case would be heard in open court, he should not use any adornment of royal splendor, nor carry any signs of royal dignity. He should do nothing in regard to the administration of the state according to the usual customs of law, and nothing he did should have any validity. Except for the collection of the royal income, which he himself and his family need for their maintenance, none of the royal domain should be used. Also, all who have sworn allegiance to him should be released from the fetters of their oath. Rupert, Bishop of Bamberg, and Ulrich of Godesheim and the others, by whose evil prompting he had ruined himself and the kingdom, he should remove forever from his entourage. If he again becomes powerful and newly strengthened in the kingdom after the accusations have been refuted, he should nevertheless always be subject to the Roman Pope and be obedient to his commandments. Finally, if he were to act contrary to any of these obligations, the release from the ban, now so ardently desired, will be null and void, and the princes of the realm should then, without being required to undertake any further investigation and freed from all obligations of the oath, choose another king. Hmm, really? Did Henry really sign over all his rights to the Pope, agree to be non-king until his judgment is delivered, and accept that he would automatically be excommunicated if he were to fail against any of this long list of obligations? Not likely. Gregory VII wrote to the German princes from Canossa a few days later justifying the loosening of the ban, and there he only mentions two commitments. First, that Henry swore to stand trial before the Pope on the accusations brought by the princes on a day and time of the Pope's choosing, and that he would give safe passage to the Pope and all his envoys. That summary by Gregory is a lot more convincing. After all, Henry had an army waiting below Canossa that could besiege and ultimately depose the Pope. So he wasn't without options. And equally, if Lambert was right and Henry had signed up to all these kinds of restrictions, why wouldn't Gregory mention them to the German princes who were pretty upset about Gregory removing the ban? The peace agreement was then sworn upon, not by the king himself but by his negotiators, Matilda of Tuscany, Adelheid of Savoy, some German bishops and Italian princes, and last but not least, Abitue of Cluny, who as a monk would not swear but promised to guarantee Henry's future adherence to the agreement. After that, the Pope celebrated Mass to which Henry was admitted and where he was offered Holy Communion, and thereby his ban was formally lifted. After that, the party sat down for a meal, a meal where Henry sat glumly at the Pope's table, scratching his fingernails into the tabletop. The next day, Henry travelled back to Germany. Henry himself never mentioned what happened in this forbidding castle in northern Italy. We do not know what he felt or said when he returned into the cold, fresh air of this winter's morning in January 1077. I have a good idea, but this being a family show, there is no way I can share it. As we said many times before, images matter, and even more so in the Middle Ages. The image of an emperor kneeling in the snow, begging the Pope to give him his ancestral kingdom back, has been reproduced over and over and will stick in people's minds until today. Whether Canossa was a clever move by Henry IV to thwart his enemies or whether it was a capitulation does not really matter. What the world saw was that the spiritual power of the papacy had subjected the most powerful of temporal rulers. And that puts a wedge into the notion that the church and the world are one and the same as had been the belief since Christianity had become the state religion of the Roman Empire. The full separation of church and state will not take place for another 700 plus years, 
but it is here, in the frozen soil of the Emilia-Romagna, that the seed of modernity is planted. I will dedicate a whole episode to the repercussions of Canossa and the events that follow when the season comes to an end. But next week, we will first travel Henry IV back across the Alps to Germany, where his enemies do not care one iota that he is no longer excommunicated. They elect another king, and the war of words turns into a war of swords. I hope to see you then. <laughs>